So when you're sitting there and if you pull it, it goes, and then it sticks, it sticks in the barrel, and then all that explosive force has to go somewhere, so the whole bolt is just going to shatter and fly apart, because that's actually the weakest part of the gun. And so he had attempted to shoot the wrong kind of ammunition out of his rifle, and that's why it exploded, to which we have this very basic principle. A rifle is a wonderful tool, incredibly powerful. It can provide for your family, but it must always be operated the way it is designed. And if you try to use a different type of ammo, if you try to rely on a different type of bullet, and if you try to utilize this rifle in a way contrary to the designer's specifications, you're going to get a boom. Within this whole world, perhaps the greatest boom we've ever seen or will ever see is the boom that exists now between men and women and the perpetual gender wars which are constantly being fought. And we talked about this at great length last week. The reason for this boom was because in the garden we had two individuals, both of whom abdicated their God-given responsibilities and started acting in a manner contrary to God's design and intention. The Apostle Paul is addressing that here in 1 Timothy. He's giving directions for the church, how the church is to function. He's giving the specifications for this institution and this organization. And as we've already seen in past weeks, beginning in chapter 2, he says men should pray. He talks about the way that they should pray and the reasons for why they should pray. He talks about praying with lifting holy hands. He talks about women. He addresses how women should dress and how they should adorn themselves with godliness and good works, not with external dressing and this sort of thing, but rather when they dress themselves, they should be modest in how they dress. And he finally comes here to this particular juncture in which he's going to transition into chapter 3, and he's going to lay out specific qualifications for pastors and elders and what those men should look like. But before he transitions back into the role of men and the leadership responsibility of men within the church, he stops for a moment to address the leadership responsibilities of the ladies. And so it is, he begins in verse, tw- verse 11, "...let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness." Verse 12, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, and then Eve. Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she, referring to Eve and all subsequently, she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Now, what Paul begins off saying here is he says, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. And as we saw last week, the reason that is is because it has to do with what God designed. It's the intention that God had when he formed the two different genders. And so Paul's entire argument for why this is is grounded not in a cultural argument, not in terms of what is acceptable in Ephesus or in terms of what might be acceptable to us today here in Kamloops. Paul grounds his argument in the way that God designed and created 
created men and women. So we hear that, and immediately for the ladies in the house, our souls start to, so you start to get your back up, and you start to get angry, and you say, why not? Why can't we? And again, it has to do with how we are to relate to each other as men and women. And it has nothing to do with cultural practicalities. And as we saw last week, it has nothing to do with spiritual superiority or inferiority, as the case may be. We are not in any way saying that men are somehow better or that women are somehow lesser. We're not even saying that somehow men are more spiritual or somehow more in tune with God and that women are somehow lesser. That has nothing to do with it whatsoever. It has to do with the relationship and the partnership and the complement that men pay to women and that women pay to men when they are working together in harmony according to God's design. All of this is grounded in what happened in the garden, and it has nothing to do with the culture of Ephesus or the culture of Kamloops today. And as we saw last week, Jesus, according to John, the Apostle John in 1 John chapter 3, Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. Which means that if our churches are to function according to God's design, we cannot go back in terms of the leadership of the church in terms of appointing female pastors, we cannot go back to the garden and continue to repeat the mistake that happened there. Which means that within the church, specifically referring to male pastors, as we looked at and saw last week, God has sent his son Jesus to destroy the works of the devil. And that means that as we structure our churches, the Bible is very clear that the office of pastor is closed to females. Now you hear that and you're like, hmm, this is just, oh, I can't stand it. It's just grating on me. But I want you to hear the first part here. Go back and look at what verse 11 says. Let a woman learn quietly and with all submissiveness. And you're thinking, okay, pastor, how does that, how does that make it better? Learn quietly and with submissiveness. That sounds like more of the same. You're not hearing this word in the context in which it was written. Let a woman learn. Did you notice that? Paul is writing to the church at Ephesus in a day and age in which the Roman Empire holds total dominion over the earth. They are in control. They are the bosses. And within Roman society and Roman culture, do you want to take a guess at what their view of women was? It wasn't great. I could spend probably an entire sermon going through and documenting all of the cultural requirements and specifications that the Roman Empire put on women, but I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to waste your time. I'm just going to summarize. Women were regarded as little better than cattle. They were, as far as the Roman Empire was concerned, they're primarily for mating purposes. And then that should grate on you, ladies. That should absolutely grate on you because you are far more than that. As we saw in Genesis chapter 2, you are there to be with man. It is not good for man to be alone. You are there to complement him. You are intended for far more, far more than simply being around to clean the dishes, cook the dinner, and to provide children. God desires more than that for you. And in this day and age in which the Roman Empire regarded women largely as cattle, largely as slaves, largely as the property of men, and understood society to be very hierarchical, in which the men held all the power and made all the decisions, to hear Paul say, let women learn, would have been a slap in the face to your average Roman. The question would have been posed, let a woman learn? Why? Why should she learn? They could not understand this sort of a thing. And yet, the word of God is clear. 
Let a woman learn. Why? Let us ask ourselves the question today. Why should the ladies learn? Is it because they have no role in the church? Is it because they have no responsibility? There's no contribution? I find it highly unlikely that the word of God would say that the ladies ought to be learning if it was not God's intention for ladies to serve a very valuable, very necessary, and indispensable role within the church. Indeed, the same guy who wrote this book also wrote 2 Timothy, the next letter we're going to be going to, and then Titus, the letter we're going to be going to after that. So we'll probably get to this passage in like three or four years, but we're going to go ahead and flip over to Titus chapter 2, and I'm going to show you something that Paul says in Titus chapter 2. Flip with me. Titus chapter 2, you just go one, two books over. Chapter 2, it's a short book. Verse 1, Paul writing to Titus, and again, writing to Titus to document how Titus is supposed to be structuring and organizing the churches there in Crete, makes this statement. He says to him in chapter 2, verse 1, as for you, Titus, you who are organizing the churches, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Well, what does that mean? What is it that Titus is supposed to be teaching? Verse 2, older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in the faith, sound in love, and in steadfastness. Verse 3, older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. Now look at this. They are to teach what is good. Which means, now if if you're hearing this, it's the same Greek word, by the way. And we like to get into these linguistic debates. Maybe he meant it differently than what he meant over in 1 Timothy. No, it's the same Greek word. It's translated the same way in your Bibles. But the statement here in Titus is, Paul is saying to Titus, women are to teach what is good. Over in 1 Timothy chapter 2, he says, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over men. Now, we can't take that passage in 1 Timothy to say that women, therefore, have no responsibility within the church. Indeed, in the context of 1 Timothy, it goes against what he has just said when he said, let a woman learn quietly. There's a point to their learning. There's a reason for why they should learn. And over here in Titus, Paul touches on that. Women indeed should teach. There is a role for them to teach. There's a place for them to exercise that gifting, which means, ladies, listen to me. Some of you absolutely have the gift of teaching, same as the men. Some of you, if I'm going to be brutally honest, are better teachers than some of the men in this room. Confession, I've heard female teachers who teach better than I teach. Okay? This is not about gifting or ability. Thanks, Pastor Al. (laughs) Everybody heard that? I saw you all chuckling. Let's just get it out in the open. Yes, absolutely. Amen. Some of the men and women out there are better teachers than you, Pastor Josh. Hey, I freely acknowledge it. Nevertheless, I'm the one up here at the pulpit. So, So, where was I? So, it has nothing to do with giftings or abilities, okay? It has nothing to do with that. Indeed, women might actually be better gifted than a lot of men. It has nothing to do with that. It has to do with the way God designed us. And it, re- it reinforces the point that Paul's making in verse 11 where he says, let a woman learn. Because over here in Titus chapter 2, the reason they are learning, the reason they are applying themselves to the word of God and the scriptures in order to learn them is because there absolutely is a responsibility that they have within the church. Specifically, older women mentoring and training the younger women. 
And he goes a little bit further. Verse 4, so train the younger women to love their husbands and children. Okay, so there's a teaching role there for the ladies. They are to teach the ladies, the older women are to be teaching the younger women how to properly love their husbands and how to properly love their children. So from that extension, we get that there is an element of of a labor of love that goes into teaching children, absolutely. But he's very clear to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands. So here, there is not a contradiction. There is not in any way, uh, Paul isn't changing his mind. He isn't contradicting himself. The, The teaching remains consistent that submission is to be understood within certain roles and relationships. He indicates that wives are to be submitted to their husbands. He indicates that within the church, going back to 1 Timothy chapter 2, that within the church, in terms of the pastor, the, the office of pastor, it has to be a man's role, it can't be a women's role. And the reason is that it all goes back to the garden. But having said that, women are called to learn. They're called to learn because they absolutely do have a role, they do have a responsibility, and that responsibility is this. They are to teach their children. They, and indeed, even, even within the the within females, within the women, the ladies here, older women have a responsibility to teach and to disciple the younger women. You know, I am so blessed. I I am married to a godly, wonderful, beautiful lady. And I am blessed because in my life, I have had the privilege of God bringing several ladies into into my sphere, my orbit, uh, whom I trust and whom I appreciate and whose counsel I lean upon quite a bit. Uh, Kyla in particular, and Shanti, absolutely, especially. There are things that happen sometimes, and uh, men, I know you'll understand exactly what I mean when I say this. Uh, There are things that happen sometimes where totally didn't notice it, just right over my head, because my wife is perceptive to certain things that I would never have noticed in a million years, even if you had pointed it out to me. You know, when it comes to reading body language, you know, I can't tell you we, how many times this has happened. We come home from a church event or some sort of a fellowship, and, uh, you know, I'm changing clothes, getting out of my church clothes or whatever, getting into my, my normal dress clothes. Shanti's doing the same thing in the bedroom, and uh, she's like, oh, did you notice so-and-so was so upset today? And I'll say, what? No, they were fine. I talked to them. I shook their hand at the back door. They were great. No, they were. They were very upset. I said, well, they smiled. And she gives me this look like, you just don't get it. Smile means nothing in a woman's world. They, they take in the whole picture. They're understanding body language and gestures. There's all those subtle cues. And men, if we're being honest, we don't pick up on any of that. It's like we smile. I cracked a joke. He laughed. He humored it. It was a bad joke. You know, it's fine. Well, they were upset. They were, they were very deeply upset. And again, I, I, don't, I wouldn't see that. So my wife offers pers- a perspective of a perception God has uniquely gifted, I think, ladies with this ability to notice things and to observe things that, for the most part, us as men, we don't have. He keeps hammering it, yeah. (laughs) Women do have stuff that you don't have, Pastor Josh, that's right. And I agree, I agree. I, uh, I would not be able to do what I do as a pastor if I didn't have Shanti by my side. Having said that, God says that when it comes to leading and to preaching and to serving, 
the man takes that leadership role. It's not that the women don't have a role. You do. But there is a way in which he has structured it to go together to where they work together, not against each other. And that's the issue. I mentioned to you last week this article in Christianity Today from November in which uh, Hannah Anderson wrote about uh, Jen Hatmaker. And uh, the article started off, if you, if you don't know who Jen Hatmaker is, then, Pastor, you probably need to start spending a little bit of time investing in the other half of your church. To which I heard that rebuke and I said, hmm, well, that's me because... I didn't know who Jen Hatmaker was. I didn't know who Hannah Anderson was. I'd never heard of any of this before. But apparently, Jen Hatmaker is a very, very uh, well-known teacher uh, from Austin, Texas, of all places where I'm from. And uh, apparently, women all across the evangelical plane uh, turn to her and just eat up her teaching. And unfortunately, Jen Hatmaker came out in recent months and apparently affirmed homosexuality and a number of other things that are clearly against God's word. And apparently this has created a bit of an uproar within the female side of evangelicalism, an uproar which I was totally oblivious to, okay? And I just freely confess to you, I had no idea this was all going on until I read this article on Christianity Today. I'm like, oh, wow. And so then you start to Google, you're like, oh, do do And you realize there is indeed an entire culture out there of female teachers, female uh, ladies who are opening up the word of God and explaining it to other ladies, and there is a hunger for that. There are tons of ladies who are wanting meaty, deep, in-depth teaching from the word of God from a female perspective. We have a need for women to start teaching in this church. We have a need for ladies to start opening up the word of God and to start teaching other ladies. The fact that people like Jen Hatmaker or Beth Moore or any of these other ladies are able to build these enormous parachurch teaching ministries, these teaching ministries of the scripture that are outside the authority of the church is indicative of the spiritual hunger that is out there in which the ladies want to learn. And as a man, and I'm sure all of the men in this room would agree with me, we can only look at that hunger for the word of God and say, amen, absolutely, absolutely, you should hunger for the word of God. And so we can look at this, the, the rise of these teaching ministries and we can say to a certain extent, amen, praise the Lord for these ladies who are coming to the forefront and who are teaching the word of God. However, we also have to regard these teaching ministries now as a bit suspect. Even though it is good that the ladies are hungry for teaching, that there are ladies who want to teach and ladies who want to hear teaching from other ladies, even though that is good and fully consistent with Titus chapter 2, we must remember that when it comes to teaching the word of God, Scripture says that should be grounded within the context of a church. And so when you have a parachurch ministry operating beyond the realm of pastoral oversight and accountability, you have a danger that is present in which you have someone like Jen Hatmaker who has enormous gathering of people who are flocking to her banner, eating up the things that she is teaching. And then she comes forward and she expresses something that is clearly unbiblical. And now we have hard rifts and sharp divisions within the church. Here in Titus as well as in 1 Timothy, the exhortation, go back to Timothy now if you will, the exhortation that Paul says is that they are to learn, absolutely, but they are to learn with quietness and submission. In other words, there's a qualification upon how it is that they are to learn. The learning should be done 
in quietness, and this is obviously a reference to the state of a person's soul. It is the opposite of agitation. It is the opposite of angst or anxiety. It is to be done in a spirit of rest, a spirit of contentment, a spirit of trust in God, ultimately. So the way that the ladies are called to learn is they are called to learn in a spirit of quietness. And now notice this next verse. Learn quietly and with all submissiveness. Now that is a word that ought to just grate on our every last nerve. Raise your hand here if you like being told to submit. Somebody raise your hand so I'm not the only one. I'm just joking. I'm just joking. Of course, none of us like to be told to submit. Nobody likes that because we are rebels by heart. It's in our nature to want to rebel against biblical authority. So when God comes into our lives and says, you need to submit, of course, by nature, we hate that. This last week, I was talking to my daughter, Chloe. And of course, uh, I'm going down tomorrow. My wife and I are flying down to Florida to have a little bit of time away to ourselves. And so I was talking to my daughter, Chloe, and I said to her, Chloe, are you excited to have some time away from uh, mom and dad to just go and hang out with your friends and have some overnight trips to your friends' houses and, and have a little bit of a break from the routine? And she said, yeah, that's nice, but do you know what I'm really looking forward to, Daddy? I said, well, what's that, Chloe? She says, I'm looking forward to not having you and mommy here to boss me around and tell me what to do. Wow. Well, tell me what you really think, Chloe. I'm really curious to know. Five seconds later, five seconds, maybe five minutes later. I mean, it was really fast. I went to another room. I came right back. And all three of my children are fighting like savage wildebeests over this book that they all want to take turns. And it's on the verge of turning violent where they're, they're sort of starting to like kind of push each other. You know how girls fight. It's not really serious at this age, but like my son is like, and he's starting to ball his fists and they're all three going at it. And in that moment, I step in, I say, stop, everybody. And they all stop because this is how it is in my house. When dad says, stop, you stop your fighting. And they all look at me and I begin to interrogate. Why are you fighting? Who had the book first? Whose book does it belong to? What is going on here? I begin the process of investigating. And then after I get to the heart of the matter and the details, I lay down the law. This is how it's going to be. You will have it first. When you're done, then you will pass it to this person and so forth and so on until everybody has had a turn. And they all sigh like, ah, that's so good. We're all going to get a turn. And one by one, they say, thank you, Daddy. And Chloe comes up to me and says, you know, I didn't know how to resolve that dispute. I was trying so hard. Yeah, sure you were. Sure you were. Yeah. And she says, thanks for settling that. And I said, do you know what I just did there, Chloe? And she's like, what? I said, I just told you what to do. I just told you what to do. I just bossed you around. And again, she, she's, because I was still a little bit hurt by that, so of course I had to just give that zinger, you know, after I'd settled the dispute. But I said to her, authority, Chloe, is good when it is God-honoring and biblical. If we don't have God's authority in our life, we can only expect anarchy. We can only expect violence. We can only count on, especially when we step out of God's design, we can only count on things going boom. That's how it is. 
I want you to understand, ladies, that when the Word of God says, learn quietly and with all submissiveness, absolutely, absolutely, that is going to grate on you. And when you hear that, if it didn't cause you to get your back up a little bit, I would think that there was something not right with you. But understand that God calls men to be submissive as well. God calls all of us to submit to Him. Indeed, it is this idea of submission in which we recognize the authority of God coming back into our lives in order to settle the disputes, in order to call us to account for our sin nature, and in order to bring peace and blessing back into our lives. So when you hear that word submissiveness, even though it ought to grate on your every last nerve, even though it will absolutely do that, I want you to just stop for a moment, take a deep breath, and recognize God has never, ever done me wrong. And he has sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross in order to take away our sins. Everything we know, everything we have from Jesus ought to be telling us one thing. Here is a king who does the most that can possibly be done for men. He ransoms us from our sins. He takes away the consequences of our actions. He brings us and adopts us, brings us back into the family of God. And his goal is one day to restore us in perfect perfect, glorious holiness to walk side by side and hand in hand with God himself. If that's his desire for us, then even though husbands can and will often make mistakes, we must still trust that when God says we are called to submit men to Christ and ladies to their husbands and all of us together to Christ, We must recognize that he ultimately has our best interests at heart. And any deviation from that plan can only hurt us in the long run. So even though you hear the word quietness and submission and you think, I don't like that. This is what is good. You know, in Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve are met by Satan. He comes as a sort of a traveling salesman. I was so convicted by a story Tyler walked and told at uh, Care Group on Thursday night. He says, you know how like when somebody knocks on your door and you're like, oh man, it's a Jehovah's Witness or a Mormon, I just don't want to get up. And you're sitting there and you're looking at your wife and you're like kind of doing the mental calculations in your head, which of us is closer to the front door? Maybe I can make her go answer the front door, right? And he's saying this, and then we're all laughing. Me and John were like, yeah, yeah, like we can totally relate. Like you don't want to get up and be bothered. And he says, you know, it's kind of like when Satan shows up in the garden selling something. And Adam just was like, I'm just going to sit here on the couch and not do anything. You're closer. You go answer the door. Eve, you go talk to him. He says, we as men should be confronted. When the Telus man comes, it's clearly the devil coming to sell us something. And... uh, (laughs) You know, or when Jehovah's Witness come, or the Mormons, and so men, we need to stand, this is Tyler's exhortation to us at Care Group on Thursday night, and of course, all of us in the room were like, ah, man, I'm so convicted, oh my goodness, and his exhortation was when the doorbell rings, rather than like trying to be like, hey, honey, it's your turn, you go answer it, you need to man up and go answer the door, or if your wife beats you to it because she's so wonderful and she wants to serve you and bless you and, and you know, answer the door so you don't have to get up, even then, you should still make your presence known and just get up and go with her to the door. I love that example. I love that example. Men failed in the garden. 
Adam failed in the garden. Eve failed in the garden too by taking upon herself the role that properly was reserved for her husband, making decisions that he should have been the one to make. As they're walking out of the garden, as they're thinking about the life that now awaits for them, this life of having to work the field, having to till the soil, pull out the rocks, clear out the thorns, for the first time, as they're walking out of this beautiful, lush paradise into this uncertain, hostile, for the first time, they're feeling fear and they're uncertain of the world around them. Can you just imagine the thoughts that are running through Eve's mind? Why did I do that? She's replaying over and over again the curse that God put down on first Satan, then her, and finally on Adam, the man. Satan, you know, you're going to go on your belly. And Eve, you're going to have pain in childbirth from this moment forward. And Adam, you're going to have to work and work, and it's going to be a drudgery. And by the sweat of your brow and by the strenuous labor of your back, you're going to feed your family. And she's just playing all of this in her mind. And, and she's, you know how it is whenever you've done something wrong and you replay the circumstances of what happened. How did we get here? Where did I go wrong? Undoubtedly, she's doing that same thing. And in that moment, she remembers, wait a minute. God promised us salvation. He made this statement to the serpent. You will go on your belly, but there's a deliverer that's coming. A seed of woman will crush your head. You will bruise his heel, but he will crush your head. The one that got us into this whole mess, if we can continue to point fingers everywhere but ourselves, Satan, the one who introduced the temptation, God did make a statement. He made a promise. We are going to get out of this one day when Satan is crushed and when he is defeated. And the way that Satan is going to be crushed, the way he's going to be defeated, is that it's going to come from the offspring of woman. And so here you have Eve following her husband dutifully out of the garden into an unknown hostile world, struggling with the consequences of all that has happened and all that has transpired. And the promise is there. The deliverance is offered. You will be saved when your child destroys the serpent. Now, a part of the curse is when you give birth to a child, it will be painful. You will struggle through that childbirth. But when you do give birth to the child, that child will one day crush the enemy. So if you're Eve and you're playing all of this back through your mind, guess what God is saying to you? You will be saved if you continue to be what I created you to be. You will be saved if you continue in the plan that I've laid out for you, which is to be with your husband. And even though it will be very, very difficult, even though it will be very, very painful, to continue with the process of childbirth. And that's what Paul says here in 1 Timothy. He makes the statement. He says in verse 13, Adam was formed first and then Eve. Okay, so he's talking about the garden. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and she became a transgressor. And then in verse 15, yet she will be saved through childbearing. He has the garden in mind, clearly referencing Adam and Eve. 
And he's thinking on this role, roles of men and women within the church. And so as Paul is working through this statement, he's saying, number one, men are to be pastors in the church. Women are not to have authority over men. And the reason for that goes back to the garden in terms of how men and women were created. And he's thinking about the fact that Eve has become a transgressor, but then he can't help but notice the salvation that was promised if Eve continues, if she continues in the process of what God has for her to continue to be a woman through this process of giving giving birth, and she doesn't know exactly when, but if she gives birth and women after her continue to give birth, if the way that God created it continues to unfold, the promise is there that Jesus will come, that he will be born of a woman, and that through what he does for us on the cross, dying in our place for our sins, all of humanity will be saved. All of humanity will be saved through what a woman does. And that's what Paul says here. Yeah, men have the leadership role in the church. But men, let's not be tricked. Our salvation comes through Christ. Eve's salvation came through Christ. And so the exhortation here is that we are delivered not if we continue to be progressive and to wind the clock forward and to redefine roles and responsibilities and to try to construe a different understanding of gender. No, the exhortation here for Adam and Eve was that salvation will come as you continue to live out your life according to how God created it. And now some of you are sitting here saying, well, Jesus has come, he's been saved, so it's time to get progressive. But notice what Paul says next. He says, if they. You notice the change in subject there? In verse 15, he says, she, and it's clearly a reference to Eve, she will be saved through childbearing, and all women after her saved if we continue to look and wait and hope for this coming Messiah who is going to be born of a woman. He will bring our salvation. So she has to continue in this process for which, for which she was designed. And Paul has that in mind. And then there's a subject change. She will be saved through this process, not that childbearing saves you. And all the women are like, whew, that's good. Right? Come on, ladies, help me out here. I'm preaching, it's hard, I know, but come on, humor me. So the lady's like, I'm not saved through child labor, I'm saved through Christ. But Christ comes through child labor. They, referencing now all of us, men and women and ladies and men and all of the above, they will, they will be saved if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. So when Paul makes this statement here, he's talking about Eve and her ultimate salvation would come through Christ. And in the last phrase, he makes a transition. He changes subjects. But he says there in verse 15, she will be saved. Greek word there is sozo. It means salvation all the way. And so the confusion here when we're reading this passage, if we just yank that verse out of context, we read that and we're like, women get saved through childbearing? That doesn't sound right. But when you understand the promise of the garden, and when you understand that Paul is grounding this whole argument in what happened in the garden, it makes perfect sense. Her salvation will come through a child. It will come through Jesus. And in order to get there, she has to continue being what God made her to be, which is a woman. And salvation has come. And so Paul then shifts his argument and he says, if they continue 
in faith and love and holiness. Which means that we're all called to continue to be men and women as God has designed us. So as we come to the conclusion of chapter 2, it doesn't take much for you to look around the world and understand that a bomb has gone off. In terms of the race riots, the race relations, relations between people of different ethnicities, if you just look at the way that our society is arguing against a traditional understanding of gender, men being men and women being women, it's very clear that humanity does not want to be what God created it to be. It's very clear that we are still in a heart of rebellion against the Father in heaven. It's very clear that a bomb has gone off. We are experiencing the violence of our rebellion. The solution for us as a church is not to keep loading the wrong cartridge and to keep hoping for different results. The solution for us as a church is to not continue to rebel against God's design and specification and to hope that somehow it will all work out in the end. The solution is the same as it's always been. Hero Israel, and by extension here, O church, let us return to the Lord. Let us go back to the Father. And the good news is, because of what Jesus has done for us on the cross. We absolutely can. Let's pray. Father, as we prepare to take communion, as we prepare to come together as a church family, I pray, Lord, that if there are any here who are still struggling against this idea of submission and quietness and adhering to biblical authority, your authority, you, O Lord, I pray, God, that you would help them to see that any heart of rebellion that they may have towards your word is ultimately the same rebellion as what was experienced in the garden. I pray, Lord, that you would open their eyes to see how destructive that is. I pray, God, that you would call them to a humble submission, a hope in you and in your word. Father, as we are preparing here in this moment to partake of communion, I ask you, Lord, to show our hearts to ourselves. If there are any here who have, men in particular, who have been harsh and domineering with their wives, I pray, God, that you would open their eyes to see their need to love their wives the way that you have loved us all. Lord, if there are any ladies here who have struggled with submission and continue to try to dominate and overrule their husbands, rather than working together with their husbands. I pray, God, that you would help them to see that they are sinning against you, first and foremost. And you'd remind them of the joy that comes from submitting to you, Father. God, for all of us as your people, if any of us are struggling with any lingering sin in our hearts, any point of rebellion, as we come together this morning, Lord, to declare our unity with you, I pray, Father, you would just do business with us this morning that you would reveal to us how we could continue to honor you through repentance. Father, drive these truths home to us, Father. We thank you always for your grace and your mercy. And Lord, help us to continue striving after the holiness without which no one will see you. Continue to mold us into being the people that you died to make us. 
We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.